Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Sir, how are you doing this evening? Well, David, you know, as little Richard said, I've been told a long time ago, and I just didn't listen. So that's the, <laughs> that's the frame of mind I'm in tonight. I love it. Excellent. Yeah, I have had an extraordinarily busy week. It seems to have just flown by, but we've had some great weather here. Luckily, that ice storm cleared up, snowstorm rather. We've just had some nice, dense fog. There's something about Oklahoma in early spring, late winter, where you get some great, great air quality, right? I don't mean that it's good to breathe because I don't know if anywhere in the continental United States is super great to breathe the air, but um, the air takes on a tint, a kind of pinkish orange tint. I get that. It's just lovely. I get that. It's lovely. Yeah. It's like the magic hour times times 10. But Chris, if you wouldn't mind, at the top of the show, I forgot to do this last time, so I'd like to do it today. I'd like to do our call to action very quickly. Um, folks, we've been getting more downloads than we had the last time I asked you to do this. So we know that we're doing something right. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, Chris and I put a lot of effort into this show because it's something that we believe in. And frankly, it's something that we have a lot of fun doing, but we would like more people to be listening. Surprise, surprise. So if you wouldn't mind, I will put a link in the show notes. Please do leave a review on iTunes. That helps other people see the show. It's an algorithm thing. I'd be lying if I said I understood it, but reviews would really help. Also, if you're listening to this on the JDO Show pod feed, I would appreciate it if you went to nocountrypod.podbean.com and subscribed there, because eventually that will be the only place where these episodes are. Other than that, moving forward into the future, Chris and I have a lot of really interesting plans for what we would like to do with the show and the surrounding universe of the show. Those include uh, book clubs, some courses. Um, what else do we have on our minds with that, Chris? Oh, editing services. Um, I mean, I think that you're a great uh, editor in certain worlds, and I've got some exciting projects. I, I One that I'm looking forward to in the summer is um, actually a really, really bizarre and wonderful thing of it's, uh, it came to me as a, an Asian American studies uh, PhD thesis about the secret history of Seattle's Chinatown, which is now known as the International District, um, and the role that it's played in uh, via illegal gambling clubs and interesting things like this in terms of the blues and jazz black circuit of 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 the of the chitlin circuit world and i think it's there's some absolutely fabulous stuff so my my pitch is, is as an editor is is looking at interesting non-fiction pieces that have a more popular audience than the academic arena uh has to offer and you're covering some really interesting uh fiction editing uh, possibilities so I, I think we've got some really great ideas that coming up, but there are some really wonderful courses. Um, and in this world of uh, you know online education, 
well, that's uh, one of the things I've been doing, you know, um, and I think we've got some really great things to offer. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to when we launch our book club uh, idea, um, which will be soon. We're just trying to build the base uh, for, for our listeners. We're, we're trying to get enough a substrate, you know, as it were, uh, of people involved that will really, really engage with some some deep ideas that, that frankly, are not available um, for, for many of us. You know, uh, anyone who's been through the university uh, system knows that once you're out of that, it's very hard to touch base with people who are on the same uh, page, you know, literally. And it, it, it becomes very difficult to find that companionship. Um, loneliness is, is the big factor of our time. And intellectual and cultural loneliness is something that David and I are really committed to combating. Um, I think that's kind of uh, what we hope to be doing with, with this podcast and some of the really cool things that we've got to roll out. I'm, I'm very excited about the rollout. I really am. I am too. And not to belabor the point, but the book club is going to be fascinating. I won't tell you what the book is yet, but Chris showed this to me. And I've got to say, it's probably one of the best books on art and art making that I've ever read. So those are going to be some really hot discussions that we're going to be having uh, with our eventual patrons on Zoom. And then uh, the idea that Chris put to me tonight that I thought was really neat was an actual book uh, full of transcripts of this show. Because as you're well aware, reading books is a completely different experience than listening to a podcast. So you might be listening to this on your way to work or while you do chores. Um, a book, you can really sit down with some of the ideas that we've talked about. And this will have a full, beautiful bibliography in the back, courtesy of Chris. Um, you can really sit with these ideas and dig into them in a way you might not be able to if the show's sort of just kind of passing uh, through your ears. So that's our pitch. Um, we'll have more on that later, but please do subscribe to the show. Please do tell your friends about it. Please tweet about it show whoever you think would like this show um, your favorite episode. And uh, with that, I think we can move on to the show here. Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Um, last episode, we, we discussed the idea of cargo cults, um, which originates in the geocultural region of Melanesia, which is the black Western Pacific part of the world. Um, from about 130 degrees east longitude to 170 degrees, uh, so just south of the equator, just north of, of Australia. Um, but I think people are aware of the idea and the phrase cargo cults. And we tried to dispel some of the unfortunate uh, popular opinions about the, that phrase. And one of the key ideas that we're looking at here is really how we look at other cultures as a way of seeing our own. And I have to say this very personally, um, the greatest life experience I've had is, is being for a moment, just for a moment, outside my own culture, really. You know, culture, you know, it, it, it's very painful. 
It's traumatic. And we don't even know uh, that the culture that we carry, we, we are carrying a lot of contraband and a lot of, of, of items that are on the manifest, you know, in a pilot sense. But there's so many things that we're carrying that we don't know about. And to be awakened to that is to be enlivened to the idea of taking a bit more control. So this, this part of the, this series that we're involved in is about how we can activate uh, some attention relative to other cultures around the world. We're going to look at uh, Peruvian indigenous people, uh, African, Central African people, um, Central Australian people. Uh, we've, we've got a, a few things up our sleeve here. But looking at Melanesia, the black part of, of the Western Pacific, one of the things that we, we talked about was the notion of cargo not being a noun, but being a verb. And I think that if we have to look at the indigenous people who still exist around the world, and they're incredibly embattled uh, by mineral and timber, you know, industry, you know, er just everyone wants their money, you know, everyone wants to exploit them. But what is the key difference? They see verbs where we see nouns. And I think that so the starting point tonight is to just to recap a little bit about what cargo as a verb means. And that's something I think that we can all relate to, really, because what are our relationships? They're dynamic, they're tense, they're strange, they're, they're difficult. They're, they're something that needs constant uh, affirmation. I mean, that old cliche of call your mother, you know? What, you know, well, why do you need to call your mother? I mean, you're, it's your mother. She should know everything that you're thinking, right? Why do you need to call her, you know? Why do we need to, to reach out to our friends, our real friends? And why do we need particularly to do that during this uh you know, COVID uh, masked time. I mean, I, I found, and I, I'm sure you have, David, that, that and I, I think our listeners have, we've rediscovered some relationships uh, that we took for granted. And, and, and that is the idea of cargo, of constant trade, constant interaction you know, these relationships don't just exist. You don't sign a contract and, and have a deal, you know. Um, you have to re you have to build them all the time, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. It really makes me think of a busy port with a bunch of ships, with a bunch of cargo being exchanged. And it does, I've been thinking a lot lately about the... Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about some of the friends who I don't really speak to a whole lot since the COVID thing happened. And I was thinking recently about my social circle and how it's begun to dwindle a little bit because people are scared. People are genuinely afraid of leaving their house, some people. And a lot of my friends in my circle were musicians, artists, and writers. And most of those people, not all, but most, got really freaked out by this thing. And so if you kind of picture that in your head now, 
Now that is a a port with a bunch of ships with a bunch of cargo where nothing's getting loaded off, right? Nothing's getting traded. There's no exchange going on, right? And when that happens, I don't know if you've ever felt uh, the way an abandoned mall feels. It gives you <laughs> yeah. kind of like a creepy feeling because it used to be a place of commerce and exchange. Malls got a lot of, uh, got a pretty bad rap uh, for being these sort of centers of capitalism. But really, when I think of a mall, I think of this sort of beautiful exchange of, you know, the girl at the at the frozen yogurt place, the Dippin' Dots, right? The ice cream of the future. Then there's right. the guy who's <laughs> who's selling a shirt with a Tasmanian devil smoking a cigar. And, you know, all these strange characters. I used to sell calendars in a mall. And I tell you what, like the people who worked there were very colorful, to say the least. But <laughs> it's it's this kind of exchange of of different personalities, of taking things home with you. This idea of cargo as a verb. When I went into work, I was I was bringing my cargo there, and I was coming home with something different than when I I, I arrived. And in this current moment, I think if there's one thing that has been really kind of bugging me is that you hear so much about the the economic uh, sort of woes of of the country from you know businesses being shut down and people's movement you know, being limited. But I mean, if you think about it, it's more of this economy of, of ourselves, you know what I mean? That's, that's been really stifled. And I think that this, if you look at the economy as like a a bigger version of our bodies, um, it really has sort of, everything has sort of slowed down and become very insulated. Right. And cargo has, has slowed way, way down. Well, you know, there's so many interesting things there. And not to digress too far, I mean, your uh, wife is carrying some interesting cargo that's going to be delivered soon, you know? And and, and it's very interesting about that, that we all begin as cargo, uh, you know, in a a woman's belly, really. I mean, 7.8 billion people have have arrived here that way. Uh, cargo is that way, um, and the process that that has, you know, everything is process, not product. And yet, we in the West have made word processing processed cheese. You know, who wants to eat processed cheese? But but process is really what's going on. I I I think of um, one of the things that really that that just tricked me off when when you were talking about harbors i don't know if people realize uh or have seen an aerial view of the straits of malacca which is one of the great shipping lines of the world and it, it's a great uh place of piracy still it all it has been for hundreds and hundreds of years Piracy and trade, and you know, they all go hand in hand. But for listeners who are interested, have a look at what the Strait of Malacca looks like now. And it's an enormous transition in process of cargo movement across the world. It's it it's it's a dynamic, you know, corporations always say that they're dynamic and vibrant and yeah. team oriented. Right, and, right. You know, like the people who are that Dave and I complain about following the science. Well, actually, the Strait of Malacca is dynamic. It's it's alive 
with human interaction, human interaction, you know, even today in this mask time when we can't even, you know, face or, or shake hands with people, you know, it's still happening. And so this process of cargo as a verb, as a world idea of trade, I mean, come on, look at the Great Silk Road. Look, look at, I mean, you can go out into Mongolia and there are people talking about trade. Everyone is talking about trade. You know, this is not a new thing. Globalization, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, the people who invented globalization were, you know, that's like ages and ages ago. Those are Thai and Indonesian, Malaysian pirates. Those are people on the Great Silk Road. Those are weird, you know, Arab sojourners across the deserts. I mean, we've been doing world trade and globalization and multiculturality the entire time. I don't know how people think that we're, you know, this is new, you know? Yeah, yeah, these these interactions that you're talking about too bring to mind a book by Anna Singh called The Mushroom at the End of the World. Are you familiar with this book? No, I'm not. It sounds like a great title though. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic book and it's about the trade of matsutake mushrooms, uh, which are considered a delicacy particularly in Japan. And what Singh does is actually follow the multinational um, both harvesting and, and trade of this mushroom. So you get everything from, you know, uh, there's, there's Hmong kind of jungle gorilla fighters, right? Um, all the way to, you know, gourmet chefs in Japan. And you go to Europe and it's this, it's this globe hopping kind of almost adventure book but what Singh is really doing is she's she's looking at a concept uh, that Donna Haraway talks about. Donna Haraway has this word that I think has a lot to do with cargo, and that is uh, responsibility, right? She breaks that word up into two, right? So it's it's when she's looking at things like climate change and you know the way that we interact with ourselves and our communities and the world at large. She talks about a concept called called responsibility, and it's the only way I feel like I can really talk about these things is through visual anatomy. So there's there's that port again, right? And there's this concept of of things flowing back and forth, right? Dirty, smelly, sweaty people coughing and laughing in each other's faces, and you know, trading things of different size for other things of different size. And I don't know. I I think that. I think that the concept of responsibility might be a good sort of addition to our cargo discussion here. I think that is true, you know, and I think the excitement of, of port as an idea, and let, let's really look closely at that word um, because it, it, it's so powerful. Portal, portability, you know, it's the opening. I mean, we're all looking for ports. Um, and, and who can actually... I mean, you and I both live in, in, in landlocked areas, uh, but there's something about being in a port environment that is just electric. You know, you feel it. You feel it. Um, you feel a deep connection to the history of the entire human geography. I mean, Dakar, um, the, the uh, westernmost city in Africa, 
And I'm not a great fan of the Atlantic. I think we talked about that in an earlier episode. I'm more of a Pacific Ocean sort of guy. Uh, I'm a native Californian, and I've I've lived in the Pacific Islands. But on the other hand, there's something just desperately exciting about looking out across the Atlantic from Dakar, and you get this weird mix of cultures. And I, I think what's really bizarre to me about this time in history now is that there is this woke idea of diversity and equity. And, you know, I, I think that's all good, I guess. I don't know. But uh, what are people talking about? The whole human history is a mingling of just incredible cultural diversity. I mean, the entire Indian Ocean is just a mess of piracy and trading, you know, legitimate trade. You know, you can't separate. The first thing, when I went out on this, you know, know, a big Zodiac life raft with mercury motors and automatic weapons, not semi-automatic, you know, weapons, real automatic weapons. And the Malaysian pirate said to me, in Malaysian, we are not pirates. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, okay, right. You're, you're not, of course you're not pirates. You know, of course there's, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it goes without saying. So this idea of, 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 of cargo and culture they're one and the same thing, and they've been that way for from the very beginning. From the first moment that people started to worry about, well, we don't have everything we need, and some other people have some things that we do need, but we do some things well. Let's let's trade, um, and let's do some intermarriage because we don't want to have people marrying their brother and sister. Right, you know? right, right. It's getting, uh, it's let's getting think about out that, into the world. You know? Yeah, it's getting out there into the world, right? It's not being afraid to get out and talk to strange people and interact with strange people and have conflict with strange people, right? You know, you're mentioning port cities, and I encourage anybody who has a little bit of time on their hands to do a YouTube rabbit hole on uh, what's going on over in Lagos in Nigeria. Right. Um, that is a fascinating city. Seems a little sketchy, if you ask me, <laughs> but also a just... A little. <laughs> uh, but also just, it, isn't it fascinating, though? Doesn't it feel, uh, doesn't that danger feel kind of interesting, at least from the comfortable distance of, you know, where I'm at near Oklahoma City? Um, th- there just seems to be a vibrancy to that. Now, again, we don't want to run the risk of... Um, sort of romanticizing what's going on with people who are in some serious poverty for some reasons that are are not their their fault. But at the same time, there does seem to be a, a kind of an interesting, very human act of, of both cargo and culture and both at the same time going on in a place like Lagos. I'll go further. I think everyone, uh, white or black or whoever, has a moral imperative to go to Nigeria. I think it's it's one of the hubs of world culture. Um, 
it's the it's certainly the hub of enormous number of oral t- traditions. Uh, I mean, rap wouldn't exist without Nigeria. There's a lot of art that wouldn't exist without Nigeria. Um, it, it, it's a crazy messed up place. Um, there's no question about that. But I guarantee anyone, it, it's it will wake you up. You know, talk about woke. You know, people are woke. You know, well, actually, like go to Africa. You know, <laughs> that's a that's a good way to get woke. You know, yeah, yeah. You know? no, Africa it's fascinates start. me. Yeah, it fascinates me, and I would love to to definitely visit that one day. But since we're going over some concepts that we talked about in part one, and I think that this is a great idea. I think that there is a lot to flesh out in that episode, and there were things that I wanted to uh, to get back to. So this is fantastic for me. There are a couple of concepts that you mentioned that I wanted to to, to put to you and just and just hear you kind of uh, riff on them if you wouldn't mind. So the the first one was the idea of no fortress, no siege, right? And so in the context of where we are today practically, what is that? What is what is what comes to your mind when you think of that? What what does that mean to you? Oh, that's a great great question. Um, well, the first thing is that I, I think it's it's a it, it could be described as a military strategy idea uh, of a culture uh, you know thousands and thousands of years old, but I think it is a psychological cultural idea that is in play. Uh, in a very personal, individual way. And I think it means that you don't harbor, and I think harbor is a beautiful word, it connects back to port, doesn't it? And and, uh, you don't harbor all your fugitives in one location within yourself as an individual. You, you, You disseminate that across a network of people. And I think that, that well, one obvious uh, you know thing would be you don't look to your husband or wife to be everything uh, that you want out of life, that you, that you realize that you need a network of people. Uh, you, you, you realize that you have a great intimate relationship with someone, uh, you know, as with your maybe your parents or your your siblings or your grandparents, if you're lucky. Um, but you don't put all the burden on one aspect of your life. You disseminate that. You, you break that up. You, you, you distribute it across a network of possibilities. And, and therefore also that, that means that you are, um, to be called upon from that network, you know, it, it it works both ways. Uh, the one talk system, W-A-N-T-O-K, one talk, one talk, which is a language group idea, is is a bigger uh, Melanesian idea of family and and networked responsibilities. Uh, it means that uh, you know, David, if I if I ring you up and say, look, you know, supposing I were you know in Oklahoma, say, look, I I need to move some furniture. Um, well, you're not going to question that, that you're going to be there at 10 o'clock, you know, to move the furniture because, you know, we're wand talks, you know, 
And, and it's just, it's a non-negotiable connection. And, and this works across a lot of cultural uh, groups around the world. You know, I mean, it's my, my next door neighbors are uh, uh, Latinx, you know, and, and, and they, they don't need to ask that they're going to have some friends come you know, help them move furniture or do something, you know, it's just right, done, right. you know, yeah. it's, you're there, you know, because that you're part of that one talk world and it, it cuts both ways. You've got your, you know, someone's got your back and you've also got some responsibilities. And I think that's a great way to live. And we're in the West a little bit broken about that because we're all fragmented in terms of family and networks and things. Um, but everyone has someone that, that uh, y- you just go, no, I'm going to help you bury the body. You know, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to ask, I'm not going to ask why it happened. I- right. I'm going to help you. We'll do that later. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We'll get to the details later. It's so interesting that you mentioned that from the Hispanic side of things because my wife's family is all you know from Mexico and Guatemala, and there was one instance when I was living in El Paso that our nephew, who is about uh, twenty-five years old, was graduating from college, and so he was having his graduation ceremony. And unfortunately, during the graduation ceremony, Rios was not able to make it because she was working at the time. So I thought to myself, well, Rios is is working, so wouldn't make any sense for me to go, so I'll sit this one out. And man, when I tell you that they were sore at me for about a month <laughs> for missing that, they couldn't believe it. They said, what do you mean you you missed it, right? Like, this is part of your yeah. family, and, and, you, and you missed his, his college graduation. Ooh, they were... They were heated with me. So lesson learned, essentially. But speaking about, you know, my wife and the thing you said earlier that I thought was so great about the fortress and the siege and, and not expecting your your partner to um, sort of sort of be everything for you, right? To have a good relationship, but to have it not be everything. You know, when you try to make your partner into into a fortress, that's when that relationship can really be attacked, you know? And I've seen it time and time again, people who hold them, themselves up and, you know, don't get out in the world and, you know, hold each other to kind of a strict, um, not code of conduct, right? Because you do want to conduct yourself in a in an honorable way with that, with, especially with that relationship. But just, you know, somebody not uh, doing the dishes, something mundane, right? Whenever those those imaginary rules are broken, all of a sudden it's a it's a fight and you have to be more of a couple of people, you know, hunting for pig in the woods somewhere, right? Where right. every every once in a while they'll they'll venture off, but you know, you know that your goal is still the pig. You're still trying to flank this pig. You can't see them right now, but you trust that they're going to be there for you. So I I think that no fortress, no siege is one of the most important aspects of thought that we discussed last episode to take forward. Well, I, I want to ground that in a really concrete example, um, which is a beautiful, real story that means a lot to me, and I think about it all the time. There was a moment during World War II 
on a small island in the Solomons that was strategic. You know, it it was a it it could have been a good landing place and base camp for the Imperial Japanese forces, and um, for a range of reasons, a bunch of young girls were left in charge of defending that island uh, because another island was more strategic and all the men went to there, you know? And uh, these were almost prepubescent girls, you know? Um, Girls, you know? These were kick-ass girls, really, (laughs) you know, actually. They created the illusion of thousands of people on that island via fire and various forms of of trickery and brought the Japanese forces down to the main beach to finally be affronted by American and Australian British forces. Uh, And what a triumph of courage that was. And along the way, though, uh, one of their, the, the, the leader girl, you know, every, every group has a leader, you know, that, that's how groups behave. And, and that's what makes them groups. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm going to cry a little bit. Um, she stood on the beach and got beheaded. Um, but she saved her friends and created a great military moment in, in World War II history. And uh, it's been a long time in seeing that recognition uh, given to her family um, because, you know, the, these cultures, they are families. Families are okay. You know, it's okay to 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 carry on in time and um she was finally given uh the recognition that she deserved but imagine the courage of a 13 year old girl standing proudly while hiding the military uh machinations that her group was involved in and then getting her head cut off. I mean, it's just a beautiful sort of moment of courage and just, I don't know. I think about her all the time. Yeah, that's, that is a, that's a very good story. And I think that I don't really have anything to add after that. I think that that's a good way to, I hope people take that with them and I hope that they think about the fortress and the siege and teamwork and community and, you know, spreading things out and trusting each other and being able to to work together. There's a, another concept that's been sticking in, in my head that I've been thinking a lot about in the past week or so. And it has to do with the story that you told about the folks who were gifted the Earth Mover mm. and decided upon, you know, receiving the Earth Mover to take it apart piece by piece and put it back together. And there was this concept of by taking something apart like that and putting it back together, you're putting a little bit of yourself into the machine. 
you're 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 ensouling it almost. So, Beautiful word. Beautiful verb. Let's get that going. Ensouling. 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 Thanks. Uh, so my question for you is, what does that metaphor mean for you in terms of how we understand magic? Well, I think it is the baseline idea um, for how we should understand magic in terms of personal, psychological, deep, um, personal dream time engagement with the world. You know, we, we have to be engaged with the world to really connect with anything and to make anything really interesting happen. Um, you know, and we have to be attentive to a strange dream time idea. I've noticed lately, um, I've been having some, uh, I, I always pay really close attention to my dreams. And I've, I've had some dreams about my ex-wife, which um, goes back, you know, a, f a fair number of years. And I don't know what the cause of that is, but something is trying to be worked out. And I think that that individually and psychologically, we're always trying to work out something. So therefore, on a cultural basis, we must be desperately trying to, you know, exponentially trying to work out some things. So when a group of Solomon Islanders takes apart a giant earth-moving machine, they're really trying to take apart all of the culture that they've been imposed upon you know um and and we all need to do that i mean the idea that that you and i are somehow western and uh more adept at culture well i don't think that's true and i don't think you believe that is true either i mean I, I think that if we broke into a house together, we'd both be wondering how to dismantle the uh, alarm system, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know? Oh, oh, I like that. That's good. You know, mm -hmm. you know it, 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 we're not sort of any more representative of, of the greatness of our culture than anyone else's. And I think what's interesting about these indigenous people around the world is that they insist upon that the idea of maturity, which what a beautiful, you know, we hate that idea. You know, if anything is mature, it sort of smells a little in, in Western culture, doesn't it? It starts to <laughs> These days, wrinkle. yes, very much. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, it's wrinkles and we need to sort of get some Botox and we need to sort of do some things to it, you know, or in some metaphorical way, we don't like maturity. Uh, but... You know, other people go, well, maturity is, is a really good thing because you're a leader in the community and you can help some younger people, you know, establish a framework and, and build a new generation. You know, they, they actually enjoy that. So I think there's something weird about how we relate to the idea of maturity. But, you know, it's, it's so interesting that that we resist that idea in the West when other people go, that's what I was born for. That's what I was, that's what I was made to do. I was made to be a, 
a, a parent, a community leader, uh, the the trail marker for a new generation. And a lot of the Western thing is like, no, I just want to eat pizza forever and play video games and, you know. Chicken nuggets. Yeah, really. I mean, seriously, isn't that really yeah. what we're doing? It is, truly. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about the kind of lack of maturity. And you're pointing out the cultural stigma around the word maturity is evidenced by the fact that I cringed at myself a little bit when I said everybody has this lack of maturity. It has a school marmish feel to it that doesn't taste good in the mouth. But the way that you're using it is, what I would say is that the way that you're using it is to express somebody who has come into what they're supposed to be, basically. Mm. Um, and I think that when you think about that, you know, the Solomon Islanders dismantling an earth mover to sort of understand how it works. I think that that is how a maturing mind also works because you can't you can't have you can't understand your own brain and your own mind until you take that apart and put yourself into it. It might seem like a strange concept at first to put yourself into your own mind, but I think we've you know, I think we've done a pretty good job on the show so far of, of saying that at any given time, we're not really sure who's in there and who's speaking. Well, who's the voice in your head when so putting yourself, I mean, it's really a, a concept of, you know, insoling your own mind. Right. And I think that um, that one just really uh, also resonated really deeply with me. Those have been some things that I've been sort of taking with me. And then uh, finally, you know, we've talked about cargo as a verb. We've talked about these ideas that have been on my mind and you've expanded on them very well. But, um, you know, there's another part to the cargo cult concept, and that is the concept of the cult. And you have yes, some indeed. very interesting things to say about this idea of a cult. What does a cult mean to you? A cult, not occult. Well, I, I'm a big one for uh, moving letters around and, and, you know, word substitution. And I think slut is an interesting idea to, to put up against cult. You know, if you want to denigrate a woman who's fun and animated and free with her body and, and you know, just enjoyable and, and kind of a good soul, well, what would you say? You'd say she's a slut. You know, that that's how you... That's how you dismantle that argument. And I think that we use the word cult as a way of dismantling or denigrating uh, anyone else's religious practices and spiritual beliefs. And it's very easy to see someone else's cult and not our own. And I mean, really, I mean, you look at the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and I, I'm sorry, I... I I, I do know a lot about this, so I'm willing to speak to people who are part of that if they have any questions for me. Um, but I, I'm going to say it's a cult. <laughs> and um, I, I'm not going to back down in the front of, of, of Mormons. Uh, I think that's a really amazing cult movement. Um, but I don't have the, you know, I don't have the, 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 the denigrative idea about cult 
that a lot of people have. I just think it's, it's, I mean, cult and culture, you know, it's connected. Um, I think cult is a way of processing certain religious and spiritual magical ideas uh, in a way that some people are always going to, uh, from the outside, denigrate. You know, I just think that's a natural sort of thing. So, but the world is full of cults. Science, Western rationalism, I hate to tell people this, and I get a lot of bad feedback from people. You know, people, you know, from the head of physics at Princeton write me and go, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, well, yes, I do, actually. Everything is a cult, <laughs> you know? I mean, what's the problem with that? The problem is that there's, an, there's a rhetorical argument that the word cult denigrates and, and permanently dismisses something as, as a worthwhile idea, you know? And that's bad rhetoric. That's bad rhetoric. That's not good physics science from a Princeton, you know, advanced studies point of view, you know? I, I'm not going to listen to that. The word cult in general is interesting to me because it feels to it feels like a valley to me, right? Uh, the U feels like you're kind of going down and then it kind of comes up with the L and ends on that sharp T, right? So it, it feels like a kind of swooping motion. And whenever I think of cult, I think of somebody going down into the depths of something, going down a rabbit hole, if you will, and then coming back out the other side with some kind of greater clarity of, of purpose, of how the world works. Now, of course, not everybody gets out of the cults, right? There are uh, organizations that you and I both know of and probably everybody listening knows of, such as Scientology, which people get notoriously sort of stuck in. And I think that when you think of the word cult in a negative aspect, those are the first things that kind of come to mind. But I love the idea of cults. One person's cult is just another person's way of life. You know, you could go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, you're in a cult. And they'd be like, what are you talking about, man? You know, I go to this building and I sing songs with people and it keeps me from drinking. Right. Like that's if that's a cult, then I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Well, you know, I mean, this is something I've thought a lot about. I mean, look at the Christian idea. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. You know, what, what, what a radical idea that is. Uh, and then by contrast, um, I mean, I'm from California. I, I, I'm from the center of cult action. And, and, and the counterculture... Uh, real backlash of, of Charles Manson, the Santa Cruz murders, weird cult, you know, it's the hub of Scientology. I mean, I, 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 um, I had a, a spat with a, a, a girlfriend in front of the main hub of Scientology in Hollywood, you know? Um, what a great girlfriend she was. Uh, anyway, um, but here's the thing, like you look at our idea of cult and, and I, I actually am really attuned to this. I, I've been uh, watching the, the old uh, mentalist show with Simon Baker and Robin. Um, 
I, I just enjoy it. It, it, was a, it was a moment of, of a connection with some people in the past, and it, it's on uh, Amazon Prime, and I just, you know, it's my sort of downtime fun. But one of the things that really is, is a, a sub-note, uh, a motif, uh, subplot, you know, whatever, is this idea of the visualized cult um, which is obviously based on uh, Scientology. But, you know, here, my question is, okay, I, I really have some major doubts about Scientology, although some really interesting people that I admire, like Robert Anton Wilson and William Burroughs, investigated, you know, uh, the whole thing. I, and I think L. Ron Hubbard did have some interesting ideas. Um, if nothing else, he said, always accuse your opponent of exactly what you're doing yourself, you know, and I don't think that there could be a better political, uh, advice program. <laughs> uh, I mean, we see that all the time, right? Um, but it's so easy for us to use the word cult. You know, I, I've, when I was in graduate school in Seattle, I lived down the street from the Moonies, and a lot of people don't remember them, um, but they were, you know, they were a major sort of cult, you know, and they had a big house, and they had a lot of weird, you know, stuff going on, and they had actually had a murder going on, which is kind of what made us all aware of uh, that they were there. Um, but it's easy to use that word cult to denigrate anyone else's beliefs that you think are a little bit weird you know you just i mean really all uh, honestly is, is in are any of the major five world religions not a cult i i, I just don't <laughs> i don't see that i don't see that yeah yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. And I think that, you know, you encounter all of the, you know, the circular logic and the kind of frustration of, of butting your head up against these questions that don't have answers. And what's tricky about those cults is that there is a lot of value to be had when you stop attempting to, to spread that particular religion or cult like a virus and actually go deep into its teachings and attempt to kind of sensory gnosis with what is you know imparted in, in the wisdom in a lot of those books right but you know any attempt to logically you know have debates about what's going on in those in those things is very fraught to begin with but i think that um yeah when it comes to cults i i definitely agree with you i think that we we use it too much as a shorthand you know, mm, um, and mm. also, also as a as a kind of side note, it is interesting these days. Ta thinking about that L. Ron Hubbard, I hope this isn't too off the subject, but I had to say it. Thinking about that L. Ron Hubbard quote about always accusing your opponent of what you're doing, what does that mean that a lot of people see Nazis everywhere these days? Mm. Makes you wonder. Just a thought, just a passing thought, um, or fascism, right? You know, there's a lot of people who who are very, very focused on the kind of rise in fascism. And it, yeah, makes you wonder if there's a little bit of the lady pro doth protest too much, right? Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, no, those were the questions that I had for this one. I really like the the fact that we did this episode in this way because, like I said, last episode was so rich and there was so much to kind of go into. Um, was there anything else about that last episode that you wanted to touch on before we start wrapping up? Well, I do want to say that um, this is a part of the world that means a great deal to me. Uh, and I think it should mean a great deal to to the entire planet because it's so globally important in, in, in terms of environment. And uh, it's not the Amazon, it's not the Congo, but it's, it's, it's in that category. Uh, and it's very, very challenged environmentally. And, and what I would like to say about that is that the environmental crisis, the death of beautiful uh, marsupial creatures with big eyes, you know, sitting in trees who are never going to be seen again, uh, which hurts me deeply because uh, they're soft and they smell good and, they're, and they fly. They can fly between trees, you know. Um, short-range flyers. Uh, but it is the sense of a world in which human habitat, human cultural habitat and environment are entirely linked in a way that we, you know, we're not quite on that level. We, we've managed to distance ourselves from this a little bit in, in in technological sort of civilization, but not for long. And we realized that with COVID and, and things that were all very vulnerable. But when I first heard of New Guinea Island, you know, the second biggest island on earth, there were 1500 languages. And now it's reduced to about 650. Um, where we're killing off habitat in a way that that is just unbelievable. And if I had to speak about Borneo, which is the third largest island on planet Earth, uh, I, I can't speak without crying. Um, it's just it, it's just a relentless destruction, and I don't know why. I you know it is it is about rainforest timber and um well it's about chinese furniture but the cultural clash in melanesia is something that i think that is really poignant to look at and is maybe a laboratory i mean i think it's an eden laboratory of language and of where all human culture began um there are people there now who have been there for a long time and what is happening to them culturally why are they breaking down why are how are cultures breaking down you know this is another way that we can look at our culture and see what's happening well the first thing is domestic abuse you know that's the first thing that happens that breaks things down. It's violence within an intimate relationship, a love relationship. 
I mean, how much more poignant can anything be? I mean, when love turns wrong, you know, okay, that, that's a country western song maybe once in a while. But we don't want that as a cultural idea, you know? And this is what's happening now. So the environmental pressure, the destruction of habitat, the fact that people make less than two cents, two cents on the dollar of what is ripped off and raped off of their land value. Well, those men are, are completely bereft. And of course they're going to take it out, you know? I mean, it really is not that, it's not that complicated. So we need to really reach out to, I mean, we are, we are going to lose within a very short time, New Guinea Island, the second biggest island, and Borneo, third biggest island, as cultural and environmental habitats that rival the Congo and the Amazon in terms of, of oxygen production, you know? You know, forget the people, you know? And, and I just think this is, um, this is an amazing thing. I, I have been out in the South China Sea and seen a rainforest songbird lost, lost, because it can't hear the mating calls because of the timber mining and industry things happening. It's out to sea and it fell into my lap and I broke its neck and, and delivered it into the sea because I just didn't know what else was humane to do. Where was it going? Where was it hoping to find, you know? Right. Well, that is a lot for people to think about. I appreciate that. Um, I can appreciate that we ended that on that on that somber note because there is a lot of value that um, I think people can get from these different ways of thinking. But even that term value is fraught because you're already thinking about um, cultural, you know, cultural production, right? About these these ways of thinking as something that we as Westerners can sort of pick up and and use like a well, like a product, mm. right? Mm. And and that in and of itself is is very problematic to use an overused term. So it's the reason why I appreciate that so much is because I do want I do think that there is a lot of worth in altering our commonly held western beliefs and integrating some of these other beliefs into it but we have to we have to realize that even that action carries the stink of this kind of colonial capitalism that is unfortunately you know sort of raising and raping as you put it um these lands right so we uh we definitely on this show we want to pay respect to the, the people there and the the problems that they're going through and not shy away from the reasons of those problems and you know just 
just put that out there, right? Like not let it be a sort of a sort of thing that we that we leave hanging. So definitely appreciate that. I um to close out the show this week, I think we have a new idea for a closing segment that um that I think will sort of usher us in between these episodes. So we wanted to do some user mail is that correct you you told me about this you have you have some yeah, uh, some yeah. notes on on the, on the shows i was thinking i was i don't know if you could tell me uh sort of grasping at straws there how to segue because that's such a powerful way to to sort of end the show but i did want to get to um this this segment that you had mentioned so you want to take it from there well i do um one of our uh loyal listeners from the southern hemisphere uh, reminded me of a great story that just cheers my heart no end. Um, do, do people know what a proboscis monkey looks like? It's, they're kind of like, I guess, silly looking. You yeah, know, the big human noses, term. right? Yeah, well, that, 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 that's exactly right. Um, but they st- they're actually very, very clever creatures, and they're very good swimmers. They're the best swimmers, as we think of uh, in terms of primates, that we know of. And they launched a kind of uh, gorilla with, with, you know, G-U-R. They launched a gorilla attack on an Indonesian resort and I think that is absolutely fabulous. And so we support proboscis monkeys around the world. Um, we don't support eco-terrorists or, or terrorists. We, 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 you know, David and I don't, we don't like terrorists. We don't like people who are doing weird, you know, violent things. But we do support uh, some crazy monkeys taking over uh a luxury resort in in Indonesia. I think that's yeah. really cool. On on no country, we are pro uh, monkey harassment, right? Or harassing Absolutely. monkeys, I guess we should say. <laughs> Absolutely. And the final thing, I I, I think that um, uh, one of the, the moments in my life was was working with people who um, don't read adults who don't read. You know, um, which is very painful, actually, and it's very painful for for uh, particularly males to acknowledge that. Um, I worked in a rural community um, that a major employer as a slaughterhouse just ended, and and they just the, all the people who had been, uh, uh, you know, had generations of work uh, suddenly didn't. And I got spoken to, and, and she's one of our listeners, and I thank you very much uh, for remembering that we reach out to people who don't always read. And, you know, and David and I are both writers, and uh, we're obviously very, you know, as deep readers as we can try to be. Uh, but we also respect and, and are trying to connect with people around the world, you know, uh, from Ghana to 
central Victoria and Australia, you know, wherever. Whatever people are at, we're, we're just trying to find them. And I thought it was really beautiful to remember that the, not everyone can read, you know, mm-hmm. not everyone mm-hmm. can read. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, on that note, folks, thanks so much for listening. On our next episode, we are going to talk about some different indigenous ways of thought. And uh, hopefully the episodes could be as good as these two. But thanks so much for listening. Quick reminder before we go, um, make sure that you subscribe to the No Country feed. That's nocountrypod.podbean.com. That's where the episodes are going to be. Very soon we will have a website launched and a Patreon launched. And we'll have all sorts of cool things that we can bring to you. And uh, hopefully furnish some sense of uh, community out of the whole thing because I'd like some new friends. So that sounds good. So until next time, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.